They say you paint quickly. I cannot work any other way. I get bored. I wasted a week on an icon once. You threw it away? No, I used the board to press cabbage. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. Spoiler alert. There's going to be a filth hut in this one. And by that, do you mean every single structure that every one of these peasants lives in? Pretty much, and an explicit filth hut. But before we get to that part of this very special film, we're at episode 98. Yes, and this is a very special episode for us because it is our first opportunity to cover a patron's choice. If you've visited our Patreon, you've probably seen that what we offer to patrons that pledge at our top tier is the opportunity to program an episode of The Magic Lantern, and Ian Buckley is our very first patron to pledge at that level. First and foremost, we want to say a very big thank you to Ian for his generous support of the show. We appreciate that a great deal. And I'd also like to note how we can always count on our listeners to deliver the goods when it comes to keeping the conversation lively and challenging, and Ian is no exception. He is swinging for the fences right out of the gate here. We were waiting with bated breath to see what he would decide on, and boy, he didn't let us down. No, it's an incredible choice, and it's one that we're both very excited about, and one that's very fitting in that it addresses, at least in part, that relationship between patron and creator. And Ian's choice is Andrei Rublev from 1966, directed by Andrei Tarkovsky and starring Anatoly Solonitsyn, Ivan Lapakov, Nikolai Grinko, Nikolai Sergeyev, yet another Nikolai, Nikolai Berlyayev, and Irma Rausch, a director of six films in her own right and Tarkovsky's wife for 13 years. It's a sprawling biographical historical drama loosely based on the lifetimes and afflictions of Andrei Rublev a 15th century Russian painter of religious icons. Now, before we dive in, how are you feeling about the enormity of this task? Very intimidated, <laughs> but very excited. And also, this knocks a big one off of my list, and I'm so excited to continue to talk about Tarkovsky. Yeah, we should say we're both big Tarkovsky fans. I think we would each say that Mirror is one of the most profound, powerful experiences we've ever had in a theater. I couldn't stop weeping, but that is the story for another episode. We would have definitely come to Tarkovsky before too long, so this is great. It's our opportunity to discuss a filmmaker that we really love, and it's our first foray into Russian cinema for the podcast. For clarity's sake, we should mention that for the purposes of this discussion, we watched the 183-minute version most recently released by the Criterion Collection. There have been different iterations of the film, most notably this one, known as Tarkovsky's Preferred Cut, though I think there are some qualifications that should go along with that, and the original 205-minute version known as The Passion According to Andre. And this languished in censorship limbo for a couple of years before it was requested at Cannes in 1969, and they sent this shortened version there, screened it one time at four in the morning, and it won the International Critics Prize. I want to talk about context at a number of points in this discussion, both Tarkovsky's world and Andrei Rublev's world. What hits me the most here before we even get started is that this film comes just three years after his first feature film. This is only his second film. So I would say he safely avoided the old sophomore slump, huh? To create possibly, arguably, <laughs> the greatest film of all time, or at least the greatest art film of all time. So we begin with part one. It's divided into two distinct halves and then various episodes within those halves. Now, how did this episodic structure work? I think it's really interesting because when I was watching it, I was trying to record so much. But then going back through my notes, it could hit me in a way that it didn't in that first viewing. I could actually reflect upon what I was seeing and the progression that was taking place, even though progression isn't really the right word. It's fascinating to see the different focus in each episode. 
and that some of them are films unto themselves, I think more than anything, there's really nothing to get about the character. It's a film that has to be processed, even understood, by just experiencing it and wondering at it. Your viewing approach definitely makes a difference with this one. I actually feel a little badly for you in that it was sort of a homework assignment the first time you got to see it. The first two times I saw it, including just a few weeks ago in the theater, they weren't for study or note-taking purposes. So it was like a huge tapestry unfurling in front of me, and it's just glorious. It's a very realistic treatment of medieval Russia, first of all, mostly about monks leading very austere lives. So there isn't vivid pageantry exactly, but there is certainly an immersive historic sweep to the proceedings. And I think this episodic structure might make it more easy to digest and process, but I would say surrender to it and have that immersive experience first, and then you can go back and try to mine the individual sections for more specific depth and meaning. All I can do is disagree here slightly just because that's not the way that we went about it. I think I gained a lot by having that time to reflect. Now, I want to be immersed in it. I want to just watch and wonder, how can he possibly get all of this in a frame? How can this world possibly come to life under this camera? Now, before we get into the film proper, is there anything you want to do to lay the groundwork to set the table for the viewer as far as background so they can better understand what we're looking at? I do, and it was a pleasure to learn these things. I'm so glad that this was the avenue for me to get there. So I want to start first when Tarkovsky was becoming a film director, which was the mid and late 1950s. That's a period referred to as the Khrushchev Thaw. Society was opening up to foreign films and literature and music, so he got to see the works of great European-American Japanese directors. And also, during his schooling, it was all about emphasizing the creativity and freedom of the film director. Now, though, let's fast forward a couple of years to 1964, when he's beginning production on Andrei Rublev. This is just a couple of years after his first feature, and then this is one month before Nikita Khrushchev was deposed. To tell you a little bit more about events leading up to this period, in 1959, Nikita Khrushchev had forced the closure of so many Russian Orthodox churches, about 12,000 if you can comprehend that. He's also responsible for ordering the deaths of about 50,000 clergy members. So think of that as we start to get into this world. Well, as we get into part one, things begin with a prologue of sorts that chronicles an ill-fated hot air balloon trip. And this hot air balloon is a striking piece of design. It looks alive, almost like a system of human organs floating in the sky. And there are two significant elements that I take from this prologue. First, it establishes what will be a prominent theme. Man's creativity reaching great heights before crashing back to Earth. And two, a favorite element of yours, I know, Tarkovsky doing things with cameras that feel like something only he can do. There's a shot here that becomes very common as you watch the film. And it's difficult to explain. You have to experience it. It circles round itself, taking us with it. We circle and span in and around something and then come back to a thing we started with from a completely different angle. Something you'll see in a ton of his films, Solaris in particular. I get that feeling a lot when I'm watching Solaris. How did we get here, even though I know everything that got us to this geographical location? It's amazing. Not only are we seeing things from a completely different viewpoint, it's as if we're seeing each of them for the first time. I also want to talk a bit about the music. It's such an interesting and uncommon use of music throughout. Here, it's a slightly ominous tone, and nothing ever feels repeated in exactly the same way. Well, symbolically, it's not exactly subtle. Harnessing imagination to science and cutting it free from where it is tethered to the cathedral all the while pursued by a reactionary mob. It's a bit of a majestic opener, at least for a moment. The miracle of a true flight and these heretofore unimagined vantage points. In Tarkovsky's universe, the creative mind is rewarded with sights that other men have never experienced. Sights that the more backward among them would argue that man is not meant to see. And like a great many pioneers operating in direct opposition to the church throughout history, 
Your heresy can only keep you afloat for so long before you are brought low again. I think no matter who the character is in any part of this film, everyone is on the verge of life or death. I want to mention one thing before we move on. The film, at least in this part, up through the epilogue, is in black and white. And that's because Tarkovsky felt that Rublev's life was in black and white, but his art was in color. Well, we begin with our first proper episode, The Jester, and that takes place in the year 1400. We're introduced to our trio of traveling monks, Andre, Daniil, and Kirill, and they've left their monastery and they're headed to Moscow in search of work. It's Tarkovsky, so it's raining, and they come upon a barn where people are being sheltered and entertained by a man singing and capering about. It's a raucous performance performed for a raucous crowd. Drunks and goats and women and children, so many people crowding this frame. And there's also a moment here that we don't see in the rest of the film, at least as far as I could remember. It's almost as if he's using a fisheye lens. The central image is normal, but the rest of the frame seems to wrap backwards like a horizon. There are two particular scenes where you get this distortion, and they're both early in the film. As the film goes on, we definitely don't see them this way again, but you definitely notice in the beginning. So does it make it feel more claustrophobic? Are you in a fishbowl of sorts? At any rate, this man has turned this barn into a regular body house, and he's making obscene references to the area between his navel and his knees. And I feel like in this first section, Tarkovsky is easing us into things, introducing us gently to a couple of ideas that he will greatly expand upon as we go. First, we have this trinity of personalities that our monks represent. Andre is frequently passive, very content to observe most of the time. In fact, it won't be uncommon for him to be silent or even completely absent for large portions of the film. Daniil is quiet as well, but he seems more focused upon reflection than observation. And Kirill has a keen eye, but not always the most pure motivation. The other important idea that's introduced is the role of the artist within his society. And I say we ease into it because with this gesture, we get to consider it from the point of view of the popular entertainer first. It's a bit of a flip side to the lofty aspirations of the religious icon painter. This isn't to discount his value, though. I think of this gesture as the 15th century equivalent of David Yao, is what he reminded me of. He's very much a guy that might just take it out on the stage at the Moody Theater during a taping of Austin City Limits. I think you nailed it there. He's also the person that's going to be in grave peril in just a moment, showing that everyone is always on the edge. Some soldiers come, and they take away this gesture by force. Oddly, though, I feel it the most when they destroy his musical instrument. It's so easy to destroy something beautiful when you're ignorant and hateful. You're walking a fine line, especially in Russia in the 15th century, to be a talented and provocative comic offender. And not just anyone can do this, as is soon proven by one of the stable boys who is just a rank imitation of what he's doing. It takes immense skill to simultaneously be funny and know where the limits are and get as close to them as possible without going over. One of the character traits of this gesture that I really enjoy, I think he's a man who is deeply self-aware of the extent of his own absurdity, and he's well acquainted with how to use that to generate everything from laughter to sympathy to his next meal. Leave it to monks to put a damper on the party, though. He won't be the last character that's made to disappear, and we find out later it's because he was surreptitiously denounced by Kirill. So in a scant few minutes, we have a grasp of who these monks are as human beings, and a hint of how the film views the risks and rewards of artistic endeavor. A bit about the use of music in this episode, outside of the jester's song, there's some amazing feminine wordless singing, and I had to look up what the actual term for that is. Do you know what it is? No, I do not. I learned it is non-lexical vocables. Mom used to pack those in my lunch when I went to school every day. <laughs> we'll just stick with wordless singing. How about that? Our next episode is Theophanes the Greek, and it takes place in 1405. By the way, that is the first mention of Andrei Rublev in history is in 1405. He decorated icons and frescoes at the Kremlin along with Theophanes the Greek. It's in this world of peril that our first sounds are of a man being tortured and screaming, I'm innocent. Kirill, one of the monks from the previous episode, wanders into a church and finds an old man on his back. 
there's art in progress here, and this man is Theophanes, and he asks if Kirill is Rublev. And we are meeting my favorite character for the first time. I should mention, it's not just torture, it is public execution that is happening as the camera winds its way through to find Theophanes at rest on his bench. You say he asks if Kirill is Rublev, and the answer is no, and that really is the issue with Kirill in a nutshell, right? He is just not Andre. Kirill is actually my favorite character, and I'll explain why in just a bit. Well, I love this conversation that they have together. We get a keen sense of Theophanes' humility and humor. Kirill offers his assessment of Andre's abilities. He's not as good as this. There's something lacking in Andre's work. No awe, no faith, no simplicity. Even though I know some of this is motivated by jealousy, I don't actually doubt the assessment. I think it's probably pretty accurate. And the thing maybe that I like most about the whole exchange is this idea of the democratization of art. All you need to work with Theophanes, apparently, is to be able to prepare a wall for a fresco, and he likes you. Do you see a universe where we could just as easily have been celebrating Kirill instead? Is it the Salieri comparison as well? It depends on how much you're willing to push yourself or market yourself, or just how much you're willing to step over somebody else to get forward. In my mind, I imagine Andre and Kirill to be much closer in terms of artistic achievement than I do Mozart and Salieri. In fact, I imagine him in a very specific way to be smarter than Andre. I don't think it translates to excessive artistic skill, necessarily, and Kirill lacks the sacred impulse. But you ask good questions. How much does that ultimately matter? But this is more of a window into Kirill's soul in general than his actual artistic ability. What do you make of his faith when you watch this exchange? I really had to remind myself, going back through the earliest parts of art history, how much abbots and monks and fathers did artwork. Because I don't think of them as being made for the life of the abbot and the monastery. It seems like something that is a chosen profession. Now when you say them, do you mean artists aren't made for the life of the abbot and vice versa? Specifically these people, and then anyone in early French or Italian history like Abbot Suget. So if they're not motivated by the sacred impulse and they're choosing it as a profession, it's more akin to house painting than actual production of masterpieces of art. I'm trained to do this one thing, and I will work at it in this place that's been made for me, basically, and then just continue to look for commissions to keep me alive. I think it's most telling in this next bit, when he is basically offered the assistantship from Theophanes, but he wants to be asked for it in front of other people mm. at the monastery. His vanity setting him up for his own undoing? Absolutely. It's a job, and I want everyone to know that I was the sought-out person for this vaunted position, not because I'm doing God's work, for example. But Theophanes sends an emissary that botches it, and he summons Andre instead, and Kirill isn't chosen to go. I want to ask you, though, do you think that he botched it, or do you think that was on purpose? I think it was a big game of telephone, is what I think. I think at the moment that he offered the assistantship to Kirill, it was sincere, and then somewhere along the line, in between the time it takes to decide what to do, the time it takes to dispatch the messenger, and the time it takes the messenger to get there and remember what he was sent for, it gets lost in the translation. I think it's a bit of double dealing, and I think it's very appropriate that Kirill is the person involved in it. I love the detail here of when Rublev is accepting the commission, and he's looking to other people to come with him, and Kirill simply turns away and walks out of frame. He's incredulous and crestfallen. I can't imagine how it would have felt. And Daniil won't go either, and that leads to a very compelling exchange. It's one that I'm a little amazed made it past Soviet censors. Daniil and Andre's relationship, it seems to be a love that is beyond platonic. While Kirill is in his room, surrounded by his paintings, considering his path and his own vanity, Andre goes to Daniil's room to say farewell, and Daniil is clearly upset. He's overtaken by intense and complex emotions. Now, maybe I'm reading this wrong. Maybe it's just such blinding purity that I don't know what to make of it. But when Andre asks him, will you hear my confession? And he is desperately clutching at the table. And then he says these things. 
I see the world with your eyes, hear it with your ears, with your heart. These are lovers' proclamations, and it's bracing, the intensity of this emotion between them. Andre even pledges to return to him. Did you have similar feelings about this? Was I the only one reading it this way? I don't know how it could be read any other way, or at least many meanings, that being a possible one. If anything, this is an incredibly loaded exchange. Daniil talks about how the devil tempted both of them. What are we to think? It could also just be that they were prey to vanity, as Kirill has been. Well, we definitely get our answer to the question I asked earlier. Kirill's faith isn't that hardy, because he's had enough, and he angrily storms out. He is returning to the secular world. He says the monastery's become a bazaar, that it's corrupted. Do you feel like this is a little bit of him protesting too much, maybe? I think it is true, and also the truest part of his character, that if he had gotten this commission, he would say nothing, and he would enjoy the benefits of that monastery becoming a bazaar. So he seems quite honest and self-aware, and also loathsome at the same time. The biggest example of that being beating his dog, who runs after him to stay with him. I said he's my favorite character because I think we see so much of him. Through the entire film, he's always true to himself, and just because he's my favorite doesn't mean I like him the most. And in general, I think it's my favorite section, at least in part one, we get the most intriguing glimpses into each of their hearts. The next episode occurs a year later in 1406, and that is The Passion According to Andre. And here is where the philosophical heavy lifting truly begins. The great majority of this section is this ongoing argument between Andre and Theophanes. We get a little bit of a meditation on the relationship of mentors and students, and then an extended discussion about the ignorance of the Russian people. And the two men arrive at the general consensus that the ignorance is actually a given, but that's not exactly the crux of the issue. The larger questions are who is responsible, who or what keeps them that way, and how can an artist function and work for the edification of these people? I don't know about you, but this is a difficult film at times for me because of how inextricably bound art and religious faith are. I'm looking at this from my decidedly secular viewpoint, and because of that, I see the roles and responsibility of the artists within their society so different than these men did, or maybe even than Tarkovsky did. I think what you said is really interesting, in part because of the tradition that we come from as Americans. Very, very broadly speaking, I know more of Italian Renaissance masters than I do of Andrei Rublev's work. And in fact, you can think of Rublev as being Russia's answer to those masters. They became secular. He did not. And so this film is really about the first artistic hero of Russia. But then in thinking about how that faith was woven into his work and his character, I find that I can't really get a hold on him. He seems, if anything, at this period, basically naive and pedantic. There are no shades of gray ever. It makes a lot of sense that he's hard to get a handle on, actually, because we don't really know that much about the man. Which makes me wonder, what you think about this, how much of this is just Tarkovsky arguing with himself? Andre and Theophanes standing out here in the marshes, is this basically his Jay and Silent Bob? Gosh, I hope not. But <laughs> at the same time, yes, I think he was arguing with himself and probably with every single one of us watching for all time. Make us think. Make us work at this but still while letting it wash over us. Maybe one of the big barriers for me in terms of faith and what this movie is trying to say, any art that I make, it doesn't carry the same missionary intent. I make it to please myself, and if it finds an audience, fine. If it doesn't, fine. So there must be an enormous amount of pressure, and I must say a certain type of built-in arrogance, to approach art as a thing that you have to do successfully for the eternal salvation of even one person. This argument is just so heady and eternal and complex. If you want to unpack this section, you have a lot of work to do. Just to pick one question as an example, are people evil or do they just do evil? Are we going to answer that in our hour here? I don't think so. And as we see during the second half of this section, which is essentially a passion play, the apostles failed at that and they were allegedly the best of us. I'm really intrigued by another aspect of that argument, 
which is that you can't work when you eat too much and you can't think when you don't eat enough. I would like to supplement that with the James Brown quote, if you don't work, you don't eat. It's a great point and something that's sometimes a luxury to think of. Well, do you hear that? Does it sound like nightingales? It does. And some sex and fire and nudity thrown in, too. That means we're at the holiday in 1408. Andre and his assistant Foma are heading towards the cathedral and are staying at a campsite. Wondering, essentially, is this work going to be finished on time? Now, there's also a pagan festival happening at this same campsite. It's happening around St. John's Eve, which basically takes place right after Midsummer's Eve. And he stumbles upon this celebration, this alien rite, naked peasants, carrying torches through the mist. It even catches his robes on fire and a nice little bit of symbolism. This is, without a doubt, my favorite episode of all of them. There are a lot of things in this that speak to me, and one of them in particular is the fact that this is the one time Andre is more than just a passive observer. His curiosity gets the better of him, and he actively goes in search of the source of this sound. There are just so many things that I love about it. The music is amazing, these ethereal visuals, the change to this new, fertile, enveloping topography, the direct clash between the spiritual and the physical... It really feels like a tectonic shift in the film. Everything feels so full of temptation. And Andre is so fixed on the unbridled sensuality everywhere. You're right. He literally catches fire. Very subtle. He's captured spying on that couple, and he's bound up in a mock crucifixion. He's cursing these people for their sins. And it's a woman, a naked woman at that, who debates with him about his ideology. I think the most important part of that whole exchange, there's a moment that foreshadows a more grisly episode to come, but I think it's her that really makes him fully aware that his religion will not save his life. She asks him, isn't all love the same? And I think we were both thinking a similar thing at this point. Paganism, it's still religion, albeit a seemingly much more fun one, but it still comes with similar dogmatic pitfalls, similar dependence on ritual, I realized here that I don't care what the thing is. If it involves other people and some sort of formation, I want no part of it. <laughs> I don't even want to be naked person number five on the left who has to carry the spear. I would say that depends on who naked person number four and number six are, if I'm voting. Okay, good point. Well, when she kisses him at the end of this, there is direct physical connection between the pagan and the Christian. What do you feel like is achieved by that? Is it more a moment of union or more a moment of confrontation? I think the latter. I thought it was a taunt, and it certainly doesn't inspire anything in him that seems like reciprocation. I think of it as a fully formed woman taunting a naive young man, younger than his years. There's one thing that makes me argue against that, and maybe he doesn't directly reciprocate, but there is this. If anyone's needle is moved between the two of them, it's definitely Andre. And here's why I say that. How much time would you say passed between when he was set free and he turns up at the old campfire tomorrow? It seems to take the entire night. Yeah, when she sets him free, there is still time even before the sunset, and yet he doesn't return to camp until the morning after. So I'm not accusing him of outright fornication, but he certainly wasn't in any hurry to depart and get back, and he won't tell his party when he returns. I think he manages to discover in himself another shame. So that's his kink? He's just basically a textbook self-loather? Seems like what self-flagellation was made for. Well, as they begin to sail away, here come more soldiers to rain on everybody's parade, and they're rounding up the pagans. And the moment that I love at the end of this is that the young boy, Sergei, is outraged by this, and rightfully so. His youth and Andre's perceived youth, that naivete, are similar but different here. Andre's has that patina of, I don't want to get involved, where Sergei's is fueled by this youthful indignation that when he sees an injustice happening, he wants to address it. He's told to look away, so it makes me wonder again, what is their shame? Is it the naked women? Is it their inaction when people are obviously in danger? I'm not sure that it's either of those things. I think it's a bit more about Andre essentially being on the side of the state, 
These are heretics. For whatever he may have felt or happened during that night, the church and the state were inextricably linked. So he's with the soldiers. And I think he's telling his younger companion, don't look, because there's nothing that we're going to do. Well, the young woman, Marfa, it seems like she escapes and she swims away into the distance. We often see sections in this way, with scenes of water flowing on endlessly like time, leading us to the next section. And that next section is the Last Judgment, which is taking place in 1408. Andre and Daniil are in Vladimir, working on the cathedral, but they're making very little progress. That's left the bishop very frustrated with them, so he has issued this ultimatum that the work must be done by autumn, and Daniil simply doesn't understand Andre's delay. It's a philosophical division that we've been aware of since those very first moments on the road together, in that barn. And I love the way that Tarkovsky emphasizes all of this visually as well. The road that they're standing on literally provides a clear line of demarcation between them. A horse and rider even pass forcefully between them. It just doesn't seem that Andre is cut out for this job. He doesn't want his art to instill fear. And this is the first time I think that we've seen Andre actually angry and this exasperated. Some of that I think is because we haven't seen him struggle with a doubt this tangible before. Do you think it's also possible that he's becoming more of the world, more aware of it, and aware of those who run it? If so, only just a little bit, because it's not his prime concern here. And it makes me wonder, is it even possible in the 15th century in Russia to reconcile this world of transcendent inspiration that he aspires to with the brutal conditions that almost everyone else is encountering day to day? It's a difficult thing for me to try to imagine, especially approaching this as someone that professes no faith. If I'm a peasant, living a subsistence existence, just trying not to get the plague over here, am I concerned at all with experiencing art? I've got enough to deal with right now without also worrying about whether or not this monk is disappointed in himself because I am not being properly transported by this icon he painted. So you referred to him as Russia's first art hero earlier. Is this conundrum that he faces heroic or just absurdly delusional? I think at no point is he a hero, at least in my estimation. And I think it's telling that, by and large, the works that he is creating are not meant for peasantry. They're in places that only princes see. It's a very personal thing for him, that's certain. And he couches it in concern for the souls of the people, even though, by virtue of your example, that's not getting to them, but it does seem a little selfish and self-aggrandizing at the same time. The thing that I think of most especially is that I can see why Soviet censors would balk at this emphasis on the aspirations of the individual and this focus on the cultivation and prioritization of the interior life rather than on what most benefits the collective. Now, I didn't approach this as a biopic initially or even a history necessarily. I still don't for that matter. For me, Rublev has always been an allegory of Tarkovsky's own struggles, especially when we acknowledge how little is truly known about Rublev's life. So much of this is just made up out of whole cloth. So when you watch the film unfold, it's clearly more a poetic logic than a straight narrative logic. Rublev's legacy, the impact that his art has had on the world for centuries since his death, is ultimately far more notable than any fixed bit of biographical information that we have about him. So it's entirely appropriate then that the lasting power of Tarkovsky's imagery is more important than the narrative plot points, right? It is, even though I am fascinated by context at different points in this film and what they reveal, both of Tarkovsky and the time. I'm a person who absolutely detests the biopic subgenre. I think it's terrible, and I finally realized while watching this why that is. So many of these films are presented basically as cause and effect. This thing happened in childhood, making them do this thing, and so on and so on and so on. Incredibly boring. All, I guess, to the end of trying to make us understand these different people, these artists. But this film operates with a completely different understanding of time and history. These questions that we've been talking about. So really... I think this is the greatest biopic of all time. I wish everything aspired to this. The strangeness of time. The tragedy of time. All of these moments that create something so much more fascinating than just he was here in 1408 and he was there in 1428. 
Well, since we're concerned about the world encroaching upon Andre, what good does all of this power of poetic imagery do for anyone when the Grand Prince has your eyes gouged out? As happens to a number of the artisans at the end of this section. All so that they can't replicate the work that they've done for one prince when they go on the job for the brother of the prince. Andre learns of this attack and he gets really angry, throws paint on the walls, and seems incredibly sad. But that attack, plus the introduction of this other character, this young peasant woman who represents the holy fool, he seems to take a bit of a turn here. He decides instead of the Last Judgment to paint a feast. And also that everyone is not necessarily a sinner, even if this specific young woman doesn't wear a scarf. But that's really about it. I mean, he's not making any sort of big grand gesture otherwise or denouncing those actions. Of course, he's in no position to do that. Earlier, I didn't mean to discount the idea that you were putting forth. I think we just had to wait to get a little closer to it at the end. At the end of this section, more and more, Andre is unable to keep himself above the fray. We are seeing foreshadowing of it the first time you mentioned it. We're seeing a lot more of it now. We definitely see it take full bloom in part two. Now, part two, it's split into fewer, but I feel like more impactful episodes. How did you perceive the shift between part one and part two? It's pretty seismic. And that's kind of literal and figurative. The earth seems to rise up. It also really starts to feel like the chickens coming home to roost and essentially the destruction and rebirth of everything. Well, he's definitely brought into direct conflict with the darker, more violent aspects of the society that he inhabits. Basically, just to put it crudely, part one, I feel like, is him talking his talk, and then part two tests him severely with walking the walk. Time to see what practical good all this philosophizing does when totters are setting your house on fire. The first episode of part two is The Raid, also taking place in 1408, and it's essentially the sacking of the city of Vladimir, where he had been working on this cathedral. It's all about the movements of men and armies and furtherance of their own power and furtherance of violence and mayhem. Their own specific brand of sickness, I think, too. It all comes down to basically one prince plotting to overthrow his brother. I started to think about, specifically in this section, the hollowness of religion and the church inserting itself or being used by these men of power to gather more power. I think the most pertinent question asked is, we're all fellow Russians, why do this? So do you think we're exploring more about man's inhumanity to man, or that religion is evil? I think Tarkovsky is taking all of this into account. When you look at this monumentally staged sequence... First, you have carnage on a scale that was likely unprecedented in Soviet cinema. Everything is burned. Tarkovsky loves his burning buildings. Men and children are killed. Women are raped and murdered. A horse is sent clattering down a staircase, bleeding profusely from an immense wound. So there is that. But then, don't forget the sacrilege. One of the totters drapes his horse in a priest's vestments. The bishop's emissary has his mouth filled with molten metal from a melted crucifix. So I think you're right. You can't get away from either one of those aspects of this conversation. And that plea that you mentioned, we're all Russians, that falls completely on deaf ears. This can't have been the patriotic epic that people were likely expecting, do you imagine? Absolutely not. And I'm really astounded as well by something that Tarkovsky said about the level of violence. He said, we shortened scenes of brutality in order to induce psychological shock in viewers, as opposed to a mere unpleasant impression which would only destroy our intent. The scope of the brutality here, even today, is pretty astounding. It's the sounds that I remember. There's music that's like a beehive when we have the assault on the city. The sound of a saw as a dead body falls on it. Vladimir's defenses are minimal, obviously, and there's no hope to withstand this onslaught. So most everyone is hiding, taking refuge in the cathedral. This is easily breached, though, and Andre is forced to arm himself and fight for the first time, protecting Dorochka, this holy fool, and he deals one of these attackers a mortal wound. What has happened here, it just seems incomprehensible. There's one brief moment near the end of the raid that focuses on the face of the younger prince, the traitor, that I really love. I don't know how you read it, 
but in his face, I saw, what have I wrought? Which you can read so many different ways. Genuine regret when he's surveying these horrors. The more callous and craven regret that there's no way that he's going to get away with this. Did you see anything particular in that expression? Some degree of pride mm. to a certain extent. There are only two survivors of this massacre, Andre and Dorochka. And Andre is visited by this vision of Theophanes, who reappears from beyond the veil. This is obviously a galvanizing moment in Andre's life, and these two men now seem to take up opposite sides of their previous argument. Each one of them has undergone a transformative experience, Andre committing murder and Theophanes having experienced his own death. At the very least, they seem to move closer together than their original positions. Andre now sees the legitimacy of Theophanes' original point, which Theophanes recants somewhat. And this episode really has some of that beautiful camera work that I know you love so much, weaving in and out, encircling these men as they encircle each other during this conversation. But Andre ultimately says he will never paint again. In that proclamation, do we have the answer to the question I posed much earlier? How does the artist justify spending time on what he does? How does he work for the edification of these people in these grim circumstances? I think the answer is that he can't. And the other part of that vow, this atonement for what he's done, is that he's going to take a vow of silence. I think back to that conversation that he and Danil had earlier, where he's basically saying that prayer is the only way to transcend this life. And so I think that's what he's going to retreat into. And even without that, that last moment here is so indicative of him to me. Rublev starts to say something to Dorochka and doesn't. I see us getting our answer, but I see it in a slightly different way than you. I see the fact that in this world where everyone lives a relatively short life and then dies in the mud with their head smashed in, it's all pointless. This brutality, and especially now his direct participation in it, has exposed those previous noble aspirations of his as irrelevant. To sit around opining about art must feel completely self-indulgent now. But what do you think it is that has shaken his faith the most? The fact that everything he thought was so crucial is exposed as superfluous? Or the fact that he's taken a life? He's created a feast when he could have created a judgment. And it got him no further. And then he ended up being the last judgment for another human being. Yeah, God's mercy certainly doesn't seem to be the point right now, does it? And so he takes this vow of silence. Nothing is more terrible than snow falling in a temple. These are the last words we will hear from him for a long time. And the next section is appropriately entitled Silence, and it takes place in 1412. Famine has struck the countryside, and Andre has retreated to Andronikov Monastery, which is where... He initially set out from all those years ago. Kirill is here too, and almost, but not quite, vaults this section into the lead is my favorite by saying the single most Russian thing anyone has ever said on screen. I spent the night standing in a frozen lake because wolves chased me in and I hope they wouldn't follow. Yeah, if you thought things couldn't get worse, they have. I also really like this section, and it comes again back to Kirill. He's sick and old and wasted at this point. Andre is there. He's not ended his vow of silence. He's the protector still of Dorochka, this holy fool, but she also seems to be a reminder of that sin. And Kirill does a fascinating thing again. He begs to come back to the monastery. He acknowledges that he was not untouched by the sickness of the world. And he seems to gratefully lap up the punishment that he's given of copying the scripture 15 times. There's nobody to like here, and I think that's my favorite part. I would quibble with one little bit of that. I would say Dorochka is sympathetic. And the Tatars do arrive, and they mock her. And after what they saw at Vladimir, I think Andre and Kirill are reasonably on edge about this. Do you imagine that she's ever seen her own reflection before? No, absolutely not. Well, the Tatars attempt to take her with him, but Andre is not having it. Now that he has taken this vow of silence, he must protest by action, which is something that we've only seen him do once before, and that ended in someone's death. It doesn't go that far this time. She ultimately leaves with them. And after all we've seen, has Andre grown in your estimation? No. <laughs> Very succinctly put. Well, to me... 
He was a little nondescript before. Of the three monks, for example, Kirill is easily the most interesting and charismatic. To me, I think you feel the same. We mentioned before, Andre is often absent or silent. We never see him creating art, which is purportedly the most important thing about him. Do you want to expand a little bit on how you feel about this character? I can. I don't really feel much about him other than what I've said, and I've watched him change a bit. The shades have become a little bit more clear, but I think this is much more about Russia. So I don't think that I have to feel much about him. I can explore all of these other aspects of everyone around him, making this specific world come to life. So sort of like you asked about Dorochka, I think he's essentially the reflection of everybody else. So then do we end this section essentially with the feeling that everyone is doing penance, silently or otherwise? Everyone seems to be coming up short. For instance, Andre drops this stone that he's trying to move in the snow. Does it also feel a bit like they've departed from what they initially set out to do? Kirill's back to stay. Andre is just sort of continuing his path, and Dorochka has made a bit of an affirmative choice, to the extent that she can, in going off for a different life. So is the lesson, if you've got a good gig at the monastery, don't rock the boat and take off for Moscow in the first place? We're being facetious, of course, but it feels a little bit like things have come full circle and yet are somehow in limbo right here. That leads us, however, to a definitive and wonderful final section, The Bell, which takes place in 1423. Again, an episode that is truly amazing in its scope and its ability to capture people. The prince wants a bell cast, but due to the plague, all the best are dead or are dying. There's only Boriska, the son of Nicola the bellmaker, who through his own hustle wrangles the gig. I teased the filth hut earlier, and that's when we hear about it here. Now to the creation of this bell. And Boriska, the young artisan, manages to alienate everyone around him as he takes charge and basically wills this bell into existence. This is a parade of guile and guesswork and gut instinct of legendary proportions, it feels like. I love the progress of the casting of the bell. It's like Mordor. Boriska as a character is pretty fascinating to me. All of these things that happen either by accident or by sheer luck. He finds the right kind of clay because he literally stumbles into it. He takes every opportunity to fly in the face of convention, whether that's digging the pit, building the mold, firing the furnaces, even when they're hoisting the bell. This whole thing seems to be spilling over its banks and is becoming more and more out of control and expensive and less likely to work. I think it's a great character touch that he literally stumbles often. You see it happen four times in this section. And it's fascinating how much this boy, and by extension everyone else, has become consumed by his art, and it's not even really his calling. Yet he still has everything riding on this. Truly, it is life or death if this doesn't come off. I really like that we've circled around so much visually in this film, and we circle back to the beginning of our story when we see the jester return. Andre has made his way back into the story, still a monk, still not painting, and still not speaking. The jester sees him and attacks him, thinking it was Andre who denounced him years ago and caused his 10-year prison sentence. It's actually Kirill who intervenes there finally confessing his own envy. Yeah, once again, Andre is sidelined for a significant portion of this last section until he is brought back into things in these two encounters. I really love this final encounter with Kirill. When he makes that confession to Andre after all this time and Andre's silence in response is nearly unendurable. As is the pattern with Kirill, he makes claims of growth and they may actually be true, but it's corrupted somehow. That corruption is given away by what he can't help but focus on, Andre's art. His obsession with that betrays him even now. And after all these years, I love this character. I love how sharp he is. I love how much he sees when he looks at something. I very much believe he's the most skilled observer of the bunch precisely because he is not a good monk. If he was as pious and as pure as we traditionally think of the position, his gaze would be fixed elsewhere. He wouldn't confront things so directly or engage the way he does. And I love 
how the wisdom that he gleans still does not keep him from falling prey to his own weaknesses. I would watch movie after movie about Kirill, like Zatoichi or Lone Wolf and Cub. I would love to see his adventures just wandering the countryside. We need to have a prequel when he was out in the world, right? Before he returned to the monastery. Fantastic. Well, at the end of this exchange, we hear a bell. Is it the bell? No. Spoiler alert. Andre goes back to hovering around this casting process. It reminds me a little of his curiosity about the pagans, but on an even more personal level, he is compelled to see the product of such dedication and daring, I think. This bell casting process is fascinating. Casting the mold, these immense furnaces and bellows. If I quit podcasting, I may take up bell founding. It's a pretty dangerous proposition. (laughs) And the tension when we are finally at the point where we're hoisting, mounting, and then is it going to ring? This tension is terrible. I think the one part of that that I truly love the most is that wonderful bit of sound design as that clapper moans and scrapes as it gets closer and closer to striking. And it does come off. It does ring and it's beautiful. And Boriska, quite understandably, is basically bereft at this point. He has willed this into existence. It has worked. And now what does he do but break down? And this is what causes Andre to at last break his own silence. And it's to comfort him. Andre says, you'll cast bells and I'll paint icons. I like the fact that what moves Andre to speak finally is Bariska's confession. The fact that there was no secret to casting the bell. It was a really moving moment for me when he broke that vow of silence. The time I saw it just before this viewing that we had at Austin Film Society, it hit me especially hard. The scope of this film is just made for the theater. Moments like that, on that scale, they knock you back in your seat. I'm still astounded that the final thought in this film is that it will be all right. First and foremost, how in the world does he possibly come to that feeling after everything that's happened? But it's truly transcendent. It's true. So maybe what he was thinking was right all along. We will both adhere to our artistic calling, and everything finally feels in its right place because of this child's brazen and willful act of creation. Just a bit of information here. Andre did go to paint the Trinity Cathedral sometime between 1425 and 1427, and then he died fairly soon after that. Not so long after this Bell episode, and he was a relatively old man for the time. And so, as we're watching things seemingly fade away, is that a trick of the light? Or do we begin to see color in the ashes of this fire? It's an epilogue, and it's where we see Rublev's work in color for the first time. And I think it's essential to see them this way to understand. I think the music here matches the majesty. It's like the Furies. I kept thinking about what these colors must have looked like 600 years ago, especially that azure. The golds, the silvers, the reds. After three hours of admittedly magnificent black and white photography, I can finally see what might have been so inspiring about this work, especially then in its most pristine state. I wondered if in our travels at the Louvre or in Oslo, for instance, we might have come across these, so I checked... And unfortunately, that's not possible. We would have to go to Russia to see them, and we haven't made it there so far. They're housed mainly in Moscow, Vladimir, and Tretyakov. I would love to see them, though. They're really quite striking, so maybe one of these days. P.S., in case you've somehow forgotten, it's Tarkovsky, so it ends on a lovely tableau of horses in the rain. We've had so many storms in this film. Our final sound is a storm that is actually eroding the walls in the art. I didn't realize that for Tarkovsky, horses symbolize life. That life was the source of all of Andrei Rublev's art. Yeah, you see him tie that together really nicely from the very first moments all the way to the end. You see them standing in this pastoral scene, and then you think back all the way to the beginning in that prologue, when you see one rising to its feet in slow motion after this balloon has crashed to Earth. With the exception of that one poor example that got pushed down the stairs, they obviously contain powerful energy. Well, the end. And we always talk about why we chose a given film, but since this is Ian's selection, let's see what he has to say about why he chose it. 
He said, Andrei Rublev casts a spell. The hypnotic rhythms of its story and its camera work would be enough to recommend it, but the theme should resonate with anyone who has needed their creative passion rekindled. And I'm really glad he brought that up, because that is ultimately what all this is heading toward, being tested, even temporarily discouraged and defeated, and I mean on an existential level, and then seeing an achievement so radical, so unlikely, and so beautiful that it makes everything seem possible again. Andre is right, and that's Rublev and Tarkovsky. That's a transcendent experience, and it feels absolutely necessary. And we talked about your trepidation in the beginning a little bit. How do you feel about it now that we have talked through it? I feel like my life has been changed for the better. I cannot look back on a more ambitious project idea that absolutely fulfilled its ambition and surpassed it. I now understand why this film has the reputation that it does, and at the same time, I wish every single person in the world had watched it or was about to watch it. And I really do want to go with my idea of watching it again in whatever setting. I actually don't mind the smaller screen because I feel like I can take things in a little bit better sometimes. I want to watch it that way again, not having to do any quote-unquote work for it. Tarkovsky designed this world so we could be immersed in it, and that's what I want to go do. And I do want to think more about this struggle to convey moral lessons at the worst times in humanity or the worst times in your own life. So where do you rank this one on your personal Tarkovsky scale? We talk a lot about the first one that you see is hard to surpass, and I think maybe that still is Mirror. And Lord Stalker's pretty amazing as well. And I'm also going to mention a Tarkovsky at my recommendation. But this is just beyond any single other achievement. Have I explained enough that also it's just great? It's not homework. It's not work. Even though there's a lot that you can think about and glean from it, it's truly beautiful. It's truly spectacular. It's truly enthralling. It's very long, and I'm so glad of that. It could be 12 hours longer. I mean, I know I don't have to convince anybody in our audience, but if someone stumbles upon this and had maybe been trepidatious of it, get into it. I think you convey it very well. This is a mammoth undertaking, no doubt. One of, if not the, greatest art house film ever made, like you said. I want to encourage people, though. Don't let these things intimidate you. I'm neither an art nor a Russian historian. Doesn't matter. Even if you're coming into this totally blind, no experience, no basis for comparison, no clue about the cultural context, don't let that put you off. We always say that the experience doesn't end when the film does, that's when the work starts. You can take up those threads after you watch if you are so compelled. It's perfectly okay to say, I didn't get that, I wonder what that was about, and then go in search of those answers. That was the horses for me. I've done it in my life more times than I can count about all kinds of things. There's no shame in being ignorant of a thing, only in willfully staying that way. And before we get to our recommendations, I wanted to talk about Ian's. He sent one of those as well. And as for a next watch, he says, for more rapturous imagery and arresting black and white photography, he recommends The Passion of Joan of Arc, which he says is another recent discovery for him. It was on my aunt's list for 2018. And just to clarify, that is the Carl Theodore Dreyer film from 1928 with Maria Falconetti and her unforgettable face based on the actual trial of Joan of Arc. It's a great choice, I think. It's a favorite of both of ours. And like Andrei Rublev, it's an essential building block for anyone's study of world cinema. I really have to say, Ian is knocking it out of the park. I am so envious of both of you. Him getting to see that and you getting to see this for the first time. I wish I could have those experiences again and again. What about your recommendation? I'm going back to the Tarkovsky well, and I finally got to see Solaris for the first time. Solaris is from 1972, directed and also co-written by Tarkovsky. This was just his third film, coming after Andrei Rublev. It stars Donatus Banionis, Natalia Bondarchuk, Yuri Yarvey, Władysław Dorzeszki, Nikolai Grinko, and our favorite Anatoly Solonitsyn. 
It's based on Sanislaw Lim's novel of the same name from 1961. So, as I mentioned, I wanted to keep focusing on Tarkovsky, as we've also discussed Mirror and Stalker and Sacrifice. This film transcends sci-fi and drama, and it's quite just something else, as we would expect from Tarkovsky. Basically, it's about a scientific mission that is stalled because of mysterious phenomena aboard a space station. Solonitsyn has another fascinating part, and I especially love, no surprise here, the sound and movement, and how those things change on Earth and in space. I like the way this is working out with these recommendations. We have Ian keeping us on the path of poetic imagery. We have you continuing with Tarkovsky. I think mine slots in very well as being yet another thing. And my recommendation this time is The Mill and the Cross from 2011. And that's directed by Lech Majewski and starring Rutger Hauer, Charlotte Rampling, and Michael York. It's about Peter Bruegel, the elder, and his painting, The Procession to Calvary. That painting has approximately 500 figures in it. In the film, and one of the many ways that it's tangentially related to Andrei Rublev, it presents us with a series of vignettes detailing the lives of about a dozen of these characters, mostly Flemish peasants. Like Andrei, Bruegel will occasionally hold forth about art, though it's often more instructional and yet somehow simultaneously less didactic than Rublev. There are elements dealing with the relationship of artist and patron. We're leaving the late Middle Ages and heading into the Renaissance, but the landscape hasn't changed all that much in that 150 years. You'll definitely see similarities in the staging of sequences of large numbers of people. And there is, of course, the element of Christ's passion in both of these. All that being said, why you should watch this is just to look at it. It's astounding. I know we've seen some well-photographed films, but this is on an entirely different level. It's almost hyper-real. You know that feeling you get when you encounter a particularly moving piece of art, a painting that you want to disappear into or live in? This is the closest thing I've ever seen to making that a reality. It literally brings it to life in a way that's indescribable. So this time we have three great recommendations. That's The Passion of Joan of Arc, Solaris, and The Mill and the Cross. And that brings us to the end of episode 98. Special thanks once again to Ian Buckley for the opportunity to dive into this, and especially for the support. It means so much to us. Ian, you'll never know the gift that you've given me of being able to see this. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you'll never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. Don't forget to come over to any of our social media accounts with your votes on which movie we should do for episode 100. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. By now, you've probably heard us talk about the new podcast network that we've launched with Aaron West of Criterion Now. It's called The 25th Frame, and we wanted to talk for a second about one of the other shows on the network. This time around, we invite you to check out The Complete Podcast. We've both had the pleasure of being on the show. I was on the Lolita episode for their Stanley Kubrick season. And that is really some of the most fun I've ever had outside of our show. We talked about incredibly fascinating things. I hope people go back and listen to that. Travis and Matt are just wonderful, smart, funny people who take great care to explore the films that make up the complete exploration of the director. Am I allowed to say that I can't wait to be on one of their Kieslowski episodes? Yeah, by all means. So check out The Complete. And you can find that wherever you get your podcasts or at 25thframemedia.com. We are on Twitter, at Lantern underscore cast, and I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Tim Lego, Jay McIntyre, Anthony King, Matteo Boscarol, Michael Hill, Joshua Wilson, Hunter Wolf from the Overexposed podcast, The Fine Gentleman at Fuds on a Film, Terry and Liz at Happily Cinemarried, Spencer Seams at the High and Low podcast, our friend Laura Cannon over at Fatal Films, 
And a special thanks to Jim Cummings for dropping by our YouTube channel to comment on our episode about his film, Thunder Road. That was very nice of him to go to the trouble. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure and tag us so we can say thanks. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, and now at the 25th frame. Just about anywhere you get your podcasts, you can find us. Thank you very much to Jordan Courtney for leaving us a wonderful review, and thanks to the nice person who left us an anonymous five-star rating. If you would like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate it. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. Fifth Frame, a listener supported network celebrating film and culture worldwide.